0: Ever wish there was a fast way to get up to speed on a complicated topic? Well, you're in luck. This series might just be for you. As providers, it's hard to stay on top of all the specialties in a multi-specialty world. So join us for the month of October and get back in the loop about everything that's happening in cochlear implants, from the fundamentals to what's changing with candidacy, patient characteristics, and the latest in tech. And you're going to hear it from the best of the best. Hit the subscribe button and be the first to know when an episode drops for this MedOd Pro Doc Talk Special Series podcast on cochlear implants. Sponsored by Envoy Medical. Hi, and welcome to this episode of Doc Talk with MedOd Pro. I am here today with Dr. Paul Shea from Memphis, Tennessee. Good to see you. I'm thankful that you're coming on today to do a little bit of follow-up in regards to KK Gross, who was on an earlier episode talking about her mom and in general sharing something that we haven't really talked a lot about, which is neurotology and private practice.
1: Yes. Well, thank you. Glad to be here. So uh, yes, I'm Paul Shea. I'm with the Shea Clinic in Memphis. The clinic was started by my father, Dr. John Shea. Uh, many years ago, uh, really back in the 60s, and we are uh, quite well known regionally as a tertiary referral center for otology and and neurotology. Um, We've had a cochlear implant center here at the Shea Clinic since really the early days of cochlear implantation, sort of the, the mid to late 80s, My older half brother, John Shea III, right after he finished his fellowship at the House Clinic in, uh, I think, 1986, uh, immediately came to the Shea Clinic and began uh, doing cochlear implantation. So there was a point in the early 1990s where we had really done quite a lot of them here compared to how many had been done at other places. But we've had sort of a robust uh, program ongoing for all these years, I'm currently the only uh, surgeon here that's doing cochlear implants because I'm I'm the only neurotologist here. The rest of our doctors are uh, general ENTs. But uh, we are private practice based. Uh, We have our own freestanding facility. We have our own ambulatory surgery center with two operating rooms. And so we do cochlear implantation right here, which is of course very convenient for the patients We do everything except uh, the programming here. We have several local audiologists who we work with, one who is hospital-based, one who is at a school for deaf children that we work with to do our programming, and we work very closely with them. But we are able to do neural response telemetry uh, in the operating room during the the operation. So Mm -hmm. our audiologists really start that process in the OR. Uh, here at our uh, surgery center. But we do have a robust program. We Im- implant all three major devices that are uh, approved in the U.S. and we do we do quite a few of them.
0: So your teams are really working with the providers outside of the practice to help move patients through that journey. How does the pre-assessment work? Is the local audiologist involved in that assessment or helping make those decisions or, or is your your team on site?
1: So I would say it's probably uh, roughly an equal number of patients that are sent in to me specifically for uh, what I would call a cochlear implant evaluation. Mm-hmm. You know, they already know that they're very hard of hearing and they've been told that they might be a candidate for a cochlear implant. They, they're not sure, the the referring doctor wasn't sure perhaps, and so they're sent in for that evaluation specifically. Uh, but I would say there's also quite a few patients that just simply come in to see me for hearing loss. and they're they're quite hard of hearing. and And so I look at their audiogram and, you know, I realize that they might be a candidate. and and sometimes I'm saying the word cochlear implant to them for the very first time. And they've never heard of a cochlear implant, literally have no idea what it is. I have to start from absolutely scratch with explaining what it is. And so then I pull out my models and I start with a little uh, a lesson about uh, the anatomy and physiology of the of the hearing system and 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 that sort of thing. So it really it's both, and it's a little bit of a mixture of of all of those.
0: yeah, that's one of the things we've been talking a lot about in our episodes is how today the conversation is changing with patients that have hearing loss and more moderate hearing loss, where in the past cochlear implants were kind of thought of as when there was no other option. And today it is becoming an option for patients that have much less of a hearing loss. Now, KK Gross, who is one of my good friends and obviously somebody that you know well is, and I don't know if it's obvious to the world, but it's at least obvious to the two of us, (laughs) You yes. had her mother um, in the clinic as a patient. She was deafened, I think it was something like 30 years prior in one year by the time she was sitting in front of you as a possible CI candidate. And KK had mentioned that you were a little reserved in regards to your excitement about, hey, she might be a CI candidate candidate. And you went through a process to determine whether that was even something that she could consider. KK had talked a little bit earlier about, you know, her mom wasn't doing great. She was failing with hearing aids, really just having a hard time. And so as she started talking to her about cochlear implants, she was not excited about it, wouldn't even consider it. It took a little bit of time for her to even get her in front of you to have a conversation. How did that conversation go? And how did you get to the point where, wow, this might be a good idea with a 90-year-old unilateral loss from 30 years ago?
1: Right. Yes. Well, she KK's mother uh, was sort of an interesting case because... She illustrates a situation that I do find patients in sometimes, and I try to explain this to them. So, you know, of course, one of the things that we're doing in a patient that we are considering for a cochlear implant is we're doing this, this evaluation, including the, the AZ-Bio test, which is mm-hmm. the test that we use to determine whether they're a candidate. And there are patients that Meet the criteria for a cochlear implant that long or more, and so I said that. And of course, she had enough hearing loss on the other side, her her better hearing left ear, that uh, she could wear a hearing aid, but it was wasn't doing well with with just that. So she was functionally single-sided deaf and then pretty severe loss on her good side.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So I said that, you know, audiologically, you you do meet the criteria via the AZ-Bio, but I said it's really believed that about 10 years is, is roughly the time frame that we like to be under when someone has been deafened in one ear for that long. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really felt that the results are better when it's been, you know, about 10 years or less, before, you know, if we're considering a cochlear implant. And of course, she was, had been deaf for much longer than that. So I explained to her, we could certainly still do the procedure, but the results were, were just less predictable. We just, we just didn't know what we're going to get. We we're sometimes surprised that some patients do kind of better than we would have expected them to do or unfortunately some of them don't do quite as well. Why that is, 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 a a, sometimes a complicated thing, but duration of deafness is certainly a factor. And, you know, 30 plus years is, is, uh, you know, you're, you're really out there in, in, uh, sort of a crapshoot territory with that. Right. So, so that was sort of the conversation. And I said, you know, we, we can do this. And she was 90 years old. Now not a 90-year-old believe it or not is not the oldest patient I've ever implanted I've I've done I think the oldest one was 92 her health is is good for a 90-year-old so she didn't really have any uh contraindications to having it done but I just said you know we just don't know what kind of results you're going to get she did have a little corner audiogram on that right side so it's not that she was absolutely profound across just all the way at the bottom on, at every frequency, but she had no word wreck on that side at all. So, you know, de- totally non-serviceable hearing. So I just said, you know, we're, we're just sort of rolling the dice with this. I would hate for, to do this and for you to be a non-user. And if you get nothing from this, that's maybe what happens. I mean, that's the chance that we're taking. And, you know, we had a couple of conversations about this and I gave her material to read and of course KK was able to help guide her uh, to some degree and sure, she took her time with the decision and I think I saw her a couple of times and we talked about it. And We had had long conversations a couple of times about it but we ultimately decided to do it. You know, lo and behold, she, she really exceeded everyone's expectations and she's, she's a user and uh, getting an open set speech as I understand, which is quite remarkable. But she's really an outlier. I mean, I, I wouldn't expect that everybody in her situation would have those kinds of results. She got a really good result. All things. I mean,
0: she is truly thriving. It is, it is a reminder, though. I think, as a provider, when you have a patient, because her audiologist, her audiologist also encouraged KK to talk with you about the possibility, because sometimes you kind of, and I don't want to say you write a patient off, but you kind of go, well, they're 90 years old. This hearing loss has been in place for 30 years. Are we really going to try to go through the process of if somebody would have made that decision along the way for the patient before they ever got, ever got to you, it really would have been a shame because of how incredibly successful she's doing and and really kind of just let the process work itself. You guys did the did the work ahead of time to see you know to really verify candidacy but then I think a lot of it had to do with just like her spirit
1: Yeah, she, I, it, well motivation I mean she she was certainly motivated and yeah, it, she, you have to really assess that and take that in, into consideration along with a lot of other things and I have patients that I explain all this to them and they sometimes they decide it's not for them and I, I respect that decision and I think that you know that they know what's best and it's an individualized thing, I think, for every patient, and every patient's situation is different.
0: How do you handle patients that aren't as local as um, KK's mom is?
1: It's certainly a challenge. A lot of our, we're sort of a a regional tertiary referral center, so a lot of our patients are coming in from some distance away, you know, one or two states away, so we have been able to streamline the process to some degree for example they can come in they can see me they can have their initial evaluation their az bio they can get a ct of the temp their temporal bones you know we'll have that initial conversation what can't usually at least at at the present time we're not able to to quite coordinate this yet is for them to have the pre-surgical visit with the programming audiologist, which is absolutely essential and which I personally rely on heavily because I really rely heavily on, on the audiologist's input in order to help make the decision of whether or not it's a, a good fit for that patient. So their schedules are just such that we have to, that winds up being on a different day, but, but they both try to accommodate Our patients as best they can so it does usually require two visits prior to their surgery after that second visit where the programming audiologist will meet with them and spend usually a considerable amount of time with them and then send us a detailed report afterwards saying that they think that they're a good candidate or not they'll also recommend which device and in some cases which side they think should be implanted so once we have that information then they can sometimes they'll sometimes come back to our clinic talk to our surgery scheduler, and be put on our surgery schedule. So then their third visit back, they are having their operation. Sure. So that's two visits prior to going to surgery. So I mean, now of course- Fairly
0: streamlined. And the surgery is not that long.
1: No, the surgery takes two hours uh, at our surgery center. And, you know, we- have been set up for outpatient odologic surgery for, for many years. So for us, it's it's a very routine thing. You know, we do them almost every week. So um
0: yeah, KK's and, mother, her only complaint was she thought maybe you shaved a little bit too much of her hair.
1: <laughs> you know something? If if that's the big if that's the patient's biggest complaint, we're doing all right.
0: You were winning. You were winning.
1: Well, we're she right. yeah. she
0: is. Definitely. I mean, she was walking on the beach and um, enjoying the waves, you know, within a very short period of time, post-surgery, you know, and localization, even it really just having a a much more full-bodied experience was the description of sound. And so, I mean, I mean, just a great result from a patient that initially I think everybody was kind of like, so it's just a great reminder. And I think she's a really good example as we're looking at a lot of obvious patients that that sometimes we don't refer over as quickly, that even sometimes the harder ones are the ones that we think oh maybe there's you know they're they're aged out or their hearing loss has been in existence for too long, et cetera you know maybe don't count them out and really give them opportunity to go you know be seen by the surgeons, be seen by the audiologists that are doing the the bigger assessments you know and really let the team do the good work to really be able to make sure that the decisions are being made and the patients being able to think through everything with all of the information. So it's really a great example. And I, it's, I'm so pleased that she did it because it's really changed her life.
1: She's, uh, she's done so well that I haven't seen her back in three years. I mean, I she's saw busy,
0: Paul. She's I busy. Know,
1: I know. <laughs> she's busy with life. That is a wonderful thing. But we, you know, we even after the surgery, we, we try to coordinate things as best we can to, to make it easier for the patient. Obviously, they're going to have to come back for some programming sessions. Uh, on one of those visits, they'll come by and see me for a, a post op surgical visit. I'll see them once or twice after they have had their surgery. And then after that, I don't see these patients sometimes for many years because they usually do very well.
0: I really appreciate your time today and following up on the earlier podcast, but also just speaking a little bit about neurotology in private practice and, you know, CI in private practice and utilizing and relying on providers that may not be always underneath your umbrella, right underneath your practice and how you partner with audiologists, particularly in your community to help facilitate care for your CI patients. It's great great information. Good. All right. Well, we thank you so much for your time today and taking a few minutes out of your busy day. And it's always good good to hear in your voice. Great. Thank you for listening to this special series of Doc Talk by Medod Pro, sponsored by Envoy Medical.